At a time of deep division in today's society, we must come together for humanity's sake. On Can We Talk 360, we strive to stimulate an authentic conversation on the issues that affect all of us in an environment of tolerance. I am Eugene Pettis, attorney and community servant. Let's discover how there is strength in our differences and an abundance of possibilities when we stand together as one humanity. A pandemic has a way of exposing the cracks in our healthcare social net. Not only has COVID-19 shown that we as a country was ill-prepared in equipment, PPE, messaging, communication, compliance enforcement, but it also highlighted the vast problem of healthcare disparities and inequities in our minority and lower social economic communities. Today on Can We Talk 360, we start a series on this most important social crisis. In part one, we have with us Ms. Jasmine Shirley, an expert community health executive to discuss healthcare disparities, a community in crisis. Not only will we discuss and define the problem, but we will also discuss its impact on the community at large, both in human and economic consequences. Welcome Jasmine to Can We Talk 360. Thank you so much for joining us on this most important conversation. Thank you, Eugene, for having me. It's not often that I get to interview someone who I have known all of my life. I have to have one disclosure here now. Jasmine Shirley is the daughter of Dr. Calvin Shirley, who is the doctor that birthed me into the world. Yes. So the family ties obviously go a long, long way. In fact, it goes my entire life. But Jasmine, uh, I'm excited uh, to talk to you about your life and your service uh, to us as a community, your service to Broward County in the social health realm, and, and to talk about an issue that really I think is of paramount importance, and that is healthcare disparity. It's something that we've seen throughout our nation. We saw it with the Flint, Michigan water issues and so many other examples over the decades, how certain minority and social economic classes seem to have such a gap in the receipt of services. And I want this discussion to really highlight that from your knowledge base and to talk about the impacts that such disparities have on us as, as a society as a whole. Let's talk about you a little bit, Jasmine, as I kind of alluded to, you ended up in the, how would you describe your space that you spent your 35 plus professional years performing? I started in public health um, as a uh, senior epidemiologist for the Broward County Health Department. I have a master's in public health with concentrations in epidemiology, specifically infectious disease epidemiology and administration. In public health, uh, my first role uh, here in Broward County at the health department was in the communicable disease section. And as a epidemiologist, all of reportable conditions had to come through and be reported by hospitals, physicians, labs, what have you, across the county into the health department's communicable disease section that I had oversight of as the senior epidemiologist. That rolled in at the time that I came into public health, which, which was the early 80s. Broward County was experiencing its very first um, impacts of HIV disease, as we called it then, um, HIV, HTLV3, HIV disease, AIDS, however one wishes to term that in the early 80s, like 80, 81, uh, when the first cases were reported in Broward County. And so I had the opportunity, luckily for me, as something new happening in the world um, across the globe, but more specifically in Broward County, something new and exciting that not many people knew about yet. Uh, wasn't much information. We're still learning, just like we are now with COVID. Um, and so it was a good time to come in in epidemiology in Broward County at that time. So 
health department opened my eyes and, and you can say I cut my teeth in public health in during that epidemic. And then I moved on um, years later because I was working with various physicians, various hospitals, developing my network of folks, got to meet different CEOs of various hospitals. 22 years later, I uh, got a call from uh, one of the CEOs of a major hospital system here in Broward that was in the business or getting ready to uh, develop more and expand more of its primary care center. And so I worked with them in between with various community meetings and what have you as a, as a primary care system was being turned over from Broward County to both hospital districts. And then years later was asked uh, to come into one of the hospital systems, Broward Health in particular, North Broward Hospital District, with Pauline Grant as she was the director of primary care centers at that time. She was then promoted to the CEO of one of the hospitals and Mr. Trower, the CEO of the system at that time, asked me to take over the oversight of the primary care centers and expand the community health centers uh, throughout the northern two-thirds of Broward. So I ended my career at Broward Health uh, after 17 years with them in the primary care centers. And, and that division was called Community Health Services, which had um, a, a variety of operations in the ambulatory world, outside of the actual hospital inpatient setting. So we were in community health centers, school-based health centers, infusion, home health, physician practices, outpatient departments uh, was my oversight at that time for the past 17 years. I retired this past February, 2018. Congratulations. That's a great span of uh, time. And also from the AIDS crisis to the now, you know, when we listen to Dr. Fauci, he really uh, came to being during that AIDS crisis. And now he, you know, obviously has continued into the pandemic. When we're talking about uh, the, the folks that are really being served by the community health services of Broward County, the 10 primary care centers, the, the health center for the homeless, it's a little more than what I think meets the eye. So around the northern sector of Broward County, you all had about 10 primary care centers that certain individuals could go to to receive care. Yes, it, those centers were open to anybody. Okay. Anybody in Broward County could have gone to those those centers. The except for the healthcare for the homeless, that particular center, which is the Bernard Pialicki, you had to be a, a part of the homeless community, actually homeless or in a transitional housing kind of a situation, meaning unstable housing, uh, to get your care received there because that was that care was funded by a special grant from the federal government that was specifically devoted to the homeless population. But all of the other centers are community health centers that are open to any and everyone in Broward, whether you are insured, uninsured, underinsured, uh, whether you have monies to pay at that time or don't, care is, is provided regardless of the ability to pay for that care. And you mentioned uh, your you got your, your degree from the University of Florida, your undergraduate degree. That was studies. my undergraduate degree, University of Florida. Graduate degrees are all from the University of Miami. Okay. And I mentioned your father, Dr. Calvin Sterling. Mm -hmm. uh, he's obviously a legend here in Broward County um, uh, and was our first black OBGYN yes. in town back in around 1949. 1949, November 1949. And obviously he, he's a legend, even though he's left us a few years ago. His name comes up so often because of all the babies he birthed and all the people he, he, he treated in general. Back then, it was not as specialized. While he was in capable OBGYN, he did general medicine as well, correct? That is true. Um, because, you know, back in those days, especially for Black physicians, you might have 
specialized in one of the medical specialties. My dad in, in particular was obstetrics and gynecology. But think about uh, when there are not too many of us in the healthcare arena and mother delivers a baby, then mom is going to bring that baby to somebody she trusts. And that was Doc yeah. um, from his office initially on Fifth Avenue uh, in the uh, early, four, well, 49, 50s. Mm-hmm. And then uh, moving to 6th Street, right at uh, 6th Street, 9th Avenue, where the old pharmacy used to be. And then finally getting the opportunity to build his own office building on 22nd Road, which is now uh, named after him, as well as another office that he used to go to in, um, in, in Delray. Uh, he shared an office space with another doctor, Dr. Narvell, up in Delray on Saturday mornings. OBGYN services there. Then he would head over to Belglade. We did this every Saturday morning. To Belglade, they set up in, uh, in the city of Belglade in one of the schools, which was a school that was uh, uh, somewhere in the western part of Belglade. Uh, they set up the, the um, portable units uh, for, uh, for prenatal care delivery, where he would help out the midwives for those women, especially that were a little bit more complicated and needed a, a physician's uh, service delivery as well. And they had no OBGYN care there. Uh, in the Belglade area, where they had very little care there in the Belglade. So he would go every Saturday morning, the office hours on 6th Street, then move up by 8 o'clock, 10 o'clock, we're in Delray, and then over to Belglade and back home. That was every single Saturday. And of course, my brother Cedric and I at the time were the only two. We had to travel with them. (laughs) So uh, It was a full day on a Saturday, every Saturday. So dad did um, that care. And as a result of that, then, you know, people say, well, doc, you know, you need to be the doc for the phys- uh, our physicians for uh, Dillard High School. So they would send the kids to get their physicals. Um, Dad would do that. Um, moms would bring their kids in and then tell their husbands, you need to get this checked out. You need to go see Doc. So he did everything until there were other specialists coming in to help do that. By 1959, Dr. Morris had come in and Dr. Morris was family practice. So there was someone else to help out in that family practice. And after that, other doctors began to come in. Um, uh, Dr. Hamilton in the in the 60s, Dr. Hamilton came. So more and more family physicians uh, began to come after that as well. Other surgeons, other specialties began to come after that. And, and dad did not leave the OB world until there was another black OBGYN in Broward County to refer patients to. That's awesome. You, you mentioned something uh, that I think is really important. As we get deeper into this healthcare disparity, do you think that a part of why certain minority communities and people in certain lower social economic communities, we're seeing such a disparity is their lack of trust of the system. Do you think there is any trust, a trust factor going on? Trust is a, does play a significant role. Relationship building with any individual, you have to have a sense of trust and comfort. You have to feel that that person cares about you and that they are competent in whatever you're seeking the service from them, that they are competent in that service and that they care about you. One of the things that we would always tell, especially in the community health center, in order to utilize that health center and to assure that you are getting the benefits that you deserve in the and in, in, in getting good delivery care to you, you have to feel comfortable in communicating with your provider, whether that be your nurse, your physician, or whoever is involved in your healthcare, you have to feel comfortable communicating with them that that you're not, you don't feel that you're being judged, that you feel that they are providing you information that you can understand when you don't understand what people are telling you, 
or if you have questions and concerns that you feel comfortable enough to explore and be uh, engaging with them to get the information that you need. But you have to feel comfortable with that. If you're not going to feel comfortable, if you don't feel comfortable, you know how some people are, they don't want to let on that they don't understand what you're saying. So right. they, they say, you know, nod their head, yes, 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 but have no clue leave what you just knowing. told them to do. And <laughs> leave they leave you, exactly, they leave you and they are not taking their medications properly. They're not following up with what you told them to do. They're not listening to those behaviors that you told them are compromising their health even further. They're not getting it. And right. when you don't get, you can't, you know, receive the benefits of what someone was trying to provide for you, whether it be the, med- the correct medications, following up with the right um, other specialists that they wanted you to see, getting the labs that you need and understanding those behaviors that you have to do to change things to make yourself healthier and better. You know, I, I never knew the story of you, you and Cedric having to travel uh, on the weekends uh, with, your, with your father, but your mother. Mom uh, was his nurse during those days. Your mom was a nurse. I, I remember I could see the picture at your house of, of, of her nursing picture. So you had a dad who was a doctor. Your mom, who was a nurse, it was no wonder you were in the healthcare space. You didn't have a choice. We didn't have a choice. They 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 engaged us in their practice. Mom was the nurse's nurse. She taught nursing and first the in fact the first nursing education program in Broward County was my mother's program at Providence so Hospital. At Providence Hospital, Providence Hospital realized that in order for it to grow. Uh, with the growth and expansion of the population over time from 1938 forward to my mom came in 1950, what, 55, 56, um, that they were going to have to uh, grow their own nurses. And Providence was known for excellence in nursing care because yeah, it's the nurses who take tell, care I, of, the, of the patients. I, I know what Providence Hospital is. I was born there in August yes. of 1960. But tell mm-hmm. our viewers, what, what give us a little brief history of Providence Hospital and what it meant to the community, particularly the Black community, and why it existed yes. uh, back in the 50s, 60s. Yes, Providence Hospital, a bastion of, of healthcare for us, an economic engine in particular, started in 1938. And that was under the direction and founding of Drs. Uh, James Sistrunk and Dr. Mizell, Von D. Mizell. Dr. Sistrunk was the first physician in Broward. Well, actually, he was the second physician in Broward County, Black physician. But because he was the one who stayed, he's given the honor of being the first. Dr. Henry Green was actually the first, but he didn't stay but a few months and then left and went to Miami. So when Dr. Sistrunk came in in 21, 22, uh, he was the only one, good old country doc. Dr. Sistrunk was a surgeon by training. But like in of all most Black doctors in the day, they did a little bit of everything because they were the only ones there. And so he took care of Brown County residents at that time, which is a small community at that time. Pompano, Deerfield, everybody came down and Dr. Sistron also made house calls. Dr. Mizell, when he finished medical school, they were both out of Meharry Medical School. He finished medical school in what, 37? So he came back in in 38, 37, 38. And the both of them together, as a result of an incident that happened in the Black community with the gunshot wounds and injuries of a young man who could not, who was turned away from hospitals. And we didn't have any hospitals uh, that served the Black community at that time. Broward County was very segregated and all of the hospitals were white-only hospitals. When this happened, that particular incident happened, Dr. Mizell, being the surgeon, had to literally beg for the support of the existing hospital at that time, which was called Broward General Hospital at the time, to use their facilities to actually work on and save the life of that young man. That angered the community so 
uh, especially Miss Aldridge. And if you know anything about Miss Aldridge in the history of Broward County, when that woman said we are going to raise the money to get our own so that we don't have to depend on anybody to let us into a hospital to give us the care that we deserve, the ball started rolling. And in 1938, they bought a little house on Sistrunk Boulevard, 1409. They bought that house and converted it into a hospital began to assemble a team of physicians and nurses, assembled the best nursing teams. Dr. Uh, Mizell served as a medical director. Dr. Uh, Sistron served as a chief of staff and the administrator. And together they founded and operated Provident Hospital, a bastion of care for us and became a major economic engine along Sistron Boulevard. It employed over a hundred people, wow. had the best of the best nursing care, started the first nursing clinical education program with the clinical um, uh, practicum care being delivered out of Provident Hospital and the uh, book work, the educational curriculum for nursing was at Dillard High School in the gymnasium. I remember because I used to have to go there every single day in the gymnasium <laughs> on the outside of the gymnasium with some other classrooms. And so that's where the curriculum in the night school was actually facilitated, the community night school there. And so the, they had their educational uh, classes for nursing at Dillard High School in the evenings and their clinical rotations and what have you were done at Provident Hospital initially. Um, 1960 forward, now we're, we've moved in the, and, and from 38 to 64, the best of the best was delivered there. The best of the best shined there, were educated there, worked, they employed people there. There was so much business, uh, that downside business that came from that hospital. When you look at Sister on Boulevard and what it was in the days when we were kids. Right. It was a thriving, thriving community. And that engine was due to Provident Hospital and what it what it meant to this community to have our own and to take care of our own and to be with our own who cared about. That's one of, you know, as I hear you discuss that, Jasmine, and and I saw when they closed Provident Hospital and we were allowed to go to Broward General Hospital and um you know, when those types of desegregation, if you will, was going on, uh, there was a wave of people thinking it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. But looking back, it also took a lot from the community. Oh, and yeah. you're talking about the, the economic engine, the education and training was in your hands. Yeah. You were making professionals through that institution in your community. I remember Fifth Avenue and, and all the businesses along Fifth Avenue that the doctors and the lawyers and other uh, retail, et cetera, was over there. We, we've lost a lot of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the piece that just came to mind, and I was asking you about the trust piece, how, you know, I look back on how people trusted the doctors then and looking at what we have now, which is a model that's so driven by see how many patients you can see in an hour. You know, everybody is moving through a time Everything's timed in corporate medicine now. It's, it's rare that you have someone who knows the family, who's grown with the family, uh, who has the continuity and the benefits of that. There, we've lost that in large in, in our society. Corporate medicine today, you could go to the same practice, but you may see a different doctor every, every day you go back. You, you know, think about the but, but I was going to say the continuity, but think about the lack of continuity we have and someone who cared, someone who genuinely cared because you were their neighbor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's something that's missing now. It's missing, um, but there are ways in which one can, to address 
the impacts that from the then to the now and to assure that you have a holistic approach to that person's care so that you can delve down into that person's overall presentation and work with them to a sense of wellness. There are ways in which you can can mitigate that. And, and so our community health center, I'll give you an example of community health centers that do that. There's a teamed approach, an interdisciplinary teamed approach to care. So you have your doctor, your nurse, you have all the various components that will be needed in the delivery of your care of that, in that particular center, whether it's social workers, your physician, your nurse, the health education uh, person who's, a, who's assigned to you, your care, care, care coordinator, your care man. You know, there might be a teamed approach to care so that you're coming in, but you're assigned a physician that's going to be the, let's say, the coach of the team. But you are at the center of that team. So you have to develop a relationship with the members of your team who are all going to be on one accord with what your care regimen will be, be reminding you, teaching you, in, engaging you, and you have to learn how to be an engaging person with the team as well, because you have certain responsibilities that you also have to do to make sure that you're getting the best benefit and the best holistic care possible from that team and you responsible to that team. So you have rights and responsibilities, just like the team has rights and responsibilities with you. And so we can get back to that kind of thing, but those have to be care providers that want to be in that kind of a setting, that want to deliver that kind of care. Now, there are many um, opportunities out there now where because people are realizing that there's such health disparities and that there's so many things that impact those gaps and differences between how people, the health of people, the care that people receive, the biases that may be within their care team and the persons around them that are supposed to be delivering the care to them. There's so many factors that can can play into creating disparities that it and the cost of these disparities. Folks are being forced to get back down to the basics and deliver patient-centered care and bring that patient to a state of wellness or to the best possible health that they can get at during a certain time period that they have them under their care. So things are changing that are forcing people to do that. Insurance companies understand that it's it's going to bite them if they don't engage in patient-centered care. Doctors are going to realize it because they're going to be, I wouldn't say penalized, but but they're going to be graded, so to speak, with the various companies that they try to integrate with, the various insurance companies that give them credentials and to be a part of their networks of keeping people healthy, just not the numbers that you want to see for exactly. the dollars that you want to make. So, you know, there are other people watching now to make sure, did you get, do you have, if you're diabetic, what kind of control are you in with your diabetes? Are you getting your hemoglobin A1Cs, these labs that are being monitored? Is somebody teaching you about your diet? Are you making those behavioral changes with your weight, your exercise, your uh, limiting things that are going to not be um, healthier for you because of your condition? All these things come into play and it's somebody's role to help keep you on track but you've got to help keep yourself as a patient on track too and yeah. understand what you need to do. And, and you, that was a very uh, uh, packed statement that you just made. And I want to touch upon a number of pieces of it. We've been talking about healthcare disparity. You know, one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the articles that I was reading dealing with the economic case for health equity, and they mm -hmm. use the term equity. Uh, and, and it states um, health equity is an economic issue 
as well as social justice issue. Yes. And they talk about the significant inequalities and disparities exist between racial and ethnic groups, social economic classes, and geographical locations, speaking of certain rural areas. Mm -hmm. In key healthcare indicators, and they look at it just to show the breadth of this problem, infant mortality rates, mm -hmm. life expectancy, rates of preventable disease, and mm -hmm. key risk factors such as smoking rates, access to care, nutrition, things that you just touched upon, physical activity, and in the social determinants of health, such as poverty, education, inadequate housing, unsafe working conditions. So really, when we're talking about the disparities of health care, it touches almost every sector of our society. To allow it to continue to exist, impact the whole. Do you agree with that? To wholeheartedly agree. And it's complicated. It's complex and complicated because the interconnections of everything from where you live, how educated you are, who, who is in your circle, who you have access to, what resources can you count on to be there? Do you live in an area where you have food? Food. Everybody's got to eat. Um, right. Look at our area. If you recall when we grew up, if there wasn't the little grocery store, the little mom and pop store, mm -hmm. and you didn't have access to transportation to get to a larger market, there were no larger markets in our area other than Bass Brothers. Right, exactly. Okay, think about that. You had to go across Sunrise Boulevard, Ninth Avenue, and we weren't living over there at that time. And wasn't invited. Oh, oh yes. Um, and then the Publix on, on uh, Andrews and um, Southeast Six. We weren't living there either. Right. And then they got the Winn-Dixie that used to be on Sunrise Boulevard. And there's another one on Federal Highway. All of that was outside of our community. So if you couldn't get to these places, how were you going to get food if it was not at the mom and pop store, which costs a lot more, which might have been not the best freshes and best food for you? Right. Um, some people even grew their own gardens back then. Right, just to right, have fresh right. fruits and vegetables. So these are complex kinds of interrelated factors that all help to impact one's health, access to health, and how one accesses health from themselves and their family. It was it was looking at this issue as we frame the issue, looking at, you know, we talk about the social economic status and people living in rural and uh, frontier communities. They have worse outcome. And one of the, some of the data talked about I talked about the high mortality and the morbidity. Cancer outcomes in treatment is, mm -hmm. is different, uh, greatly for people in low social economic areas. Mm -hmm. One third of all motor vehicle accidents occur in rural areas. Two thirds of all the deaths attributed to the accidents are in rural areas. Again, mm -hmm. a disparity cannot be explained. Suicide rate of men living in rural areas is significantly higher than men in urban areas. And it just continues to go into, and this is data that we know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that needs to be studied. It's been studied. You look at the health, you know, uh, healthcare data, even among, and this is what is just striking. You say, okay, well, there's an income difference. So certain people can afford it, certain people can't. But then they study the disparities in healthcare and health exists even among employees with equal benefits. Yes. That's people that got the same benefits. Yeah. Yes. And they studied it in the unequal treatment confronting racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare study. Even when they had the same healthcare insurance benefits and social economic status, mm -hmm. in other words, all is even. And when comorbidities stage a presentation 
and other confounding variables are controlled for members of racial and ethnic minority groups in the United States, often whites fared better than their counterparts. Yes. Everything else was e equal. The benefits, access, the comorbidities, still with those controlled whites fared better than black and brown individuals. And some of the suggestions, Jasmine, and I'll get your comments on it, was uh, whites with congestive heart failure were more likely to receive appropriate of cardiac care, such as angioplasty, bypass surgery, etc., cetera, uh, than the other constituents were. Same disease, one goes down one path, one goes down another. Racial and ethnic differences in cancer screening and diagnosis and treatment. African-American diabetes, diabetics are among more three times likely to receive limb amputations than white diabetics. African-American children with asthma are three to four times more likely than white children to be hospitalized. And it just goes on and on and on. How do we address that, Jasmine? When you were in, in the clinics and you know these statistics and facts better than I do, what are we doing to try to address that type of disparity? Well, you're going to have to approach that from many angles, in my opinion. One of the approaches could be and should be to always ensure that there is diversity in your hiring of your professional staff so that you can begin to address trust levels, language and cultural barriers, that you can um, you have a variety of, of people and ideas at the table who are in various levels of that organization, from the leadership throughout to the provider themselves, that people see themselves in the, in the people that are working with them in the health center. So I encourage that, have a diverse staff um, as, as one way to address the issue. And then always, always, and I think they need to start teaching this more while these uh, professionals, whether they're nurses, doctors, whomever in the healthcare arenas, begin to teach about those biases that, you know, people may have some unintentional or intentional biases that they have about people, stereotypes. Begin to teach those so that we can steer people away from those biases because it has no place in the delivery of, of healthcare in terms of people and the delivery that's given to them. So you have some unintentional biases, some intentional biases, you have lack of a diverse staff, um, and then you have to put money into the, the, the system of things to make it improve. I cannot tell you the, the number of years, my 17 years with Broward Health, trying to get them to understand that I can save more on for the whole system on the preventive end by giving me the tools and the resources to prevent illnesses, to prevent unnecessary hospitalizations. So we designed a team that also had what, what we called our disease state manager. Every one of our patients who had whatever chronic disease that they had, we had somebody assigned to them to teach them that disorder, to help them understand and to educate them. They knew them from their house because they did house visits. They knew everything about that person in terms of their behavior so that they could help, help steer and change some of that stuff. They were an integral part of their care team that they could call on immediately when things were going downhill, but they taught them such that they knew exactly when they were in trouble with anything. And so you, you need to have that frontline communication. That's where the trust comes in, that you have a, 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 life, a life safety belt that you can reach out to to get you to another spot 
so that you don't go downhill fast. Well, we had that in the form of a disease state care manager, so to speak. That's the name we called them was disease state manager. Our, between our diabetics, most of our chronic diseases were amongst our people were the diabetes, congestive heart failure, strokes and other cardiovascular, hypertension. And each one of those nurses that we had assigned, those disease state managers that, that we had assigned were experts in those disease states so that they could help integrate other parts of the care that the person would need and other behavior modifications in particular that that person would need to work towards to get themselves healthier and to remain stable, such that we were able with every disease state to avoid $2.5 million worth of unnecessary care to the bottom line of Broward Health for every disease state. In one year, we proved to them that we only had of our fifth, at that at the time that I was oversight, we had what, 52,000 lives that we were responsible for in our 10 primary care centers. We only had 16 people to be admitted to the hospital that year. Wow. And we would actually monitor that to make sure they were always in those disease states that if we kept people with a semblance of wellness so that they understood what was happening and they could mitigate around what was happening and improve themselves and, and their health care, that we could reduce the number of hospitalizations that they would have. And especially if they were uninsured, so that was going to be uncompensated care that the district was gonna have to take care of anyway. So that was gonna hit the bottom line anyway. Once we were able to prove that to them and we were able to get other grants to, to expand the program so we can add other disease states to it like sickle cell disease. Then we started a sickle cell day unit so that when people were in crisis, they didn't have to come through the emergency room. They just go straight through the day unit and get the, the, the necessary crisis intervention therapy that they needed without having to so-called get admitted, get that pain relief, get that crisis under control and then get them back home and then understand what was happening to bring on that crisis and try to mitigate that. Those are the things that when you integrate that care with people who want to be a part and who, who the patient has trusted to be a part of their care team, you can get things done because it's about preventing things from happening in the long run that's going to make you better. That's a excellent- Ounce of prevention uh, is a pound of cure. I mean, it, it makes sense. It makes sense. And it, 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 it makes sense. And it's been proven. But so often people see the price tag on the preventative front and don't want to spend it and end up spending more on the back, you, end. It, on the back end. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. the same thing. You look at criminal justice. OK, let's put a little money in the system to get people to get some type of education so you can get a job. No, we, we don't want to do that. So mm -hmm. you then end up spending tons of money yeah. housing people in the criminal system. The money comes out of the public coffers anyway. Not why not bring bring it about in a constructive fashion where people are healthier and more gainfully employed, as mm -hmm. opposed to in a crisis mode when there's criminality or if there's healthcare crisis. Mm -hmm. And 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 you 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 raise an excellent point. Um, you talked about I think the pandemic has has highlighted so many fractures we have in our societal framework. Yes. Uh, one of them, and, and, and I, I, uh, I was just shocked with the story. Uh, there are two doctors who have died in the last six months in Minneapolis. One of them, Dr. Susan Moore, made national news. Yes. Uh, she was at one of the Indiana University hospitals. Uh, and this is a medical doctor who's in the hospital uh, needing care, 
So she has the knowledge of knowing her body and she's in pain and she's asking the, the ER physician for certain narcotics to help lessen her pain. Uh, and it made national news because of the fact that she said that the emergency room physician told her that he felt uncomfortable giving her more narcotics and suggested that she should be discharged. And her statement is that he made me feel like an addict uh, by ignoring, he didn't believe I was in the pain I was in. They went and did some tests and showed that she did have some complications that that doctor wasn't even aware of that explained her pain. She went on to die uh, a, a week or two later from COVID, which is why she was in the hospital in, in the first place. But what struck me probably more than anything else is what the president CEO of the hospital said in response to her social media posts before she left the hospital. She, she was discharged from IU's hospital and the next day sent to another hospital because she was still in crisis and died in that hospital. The doctor said, made a comment uh, that received a lot of backlash for blame the victim type. He stated that she was a complex patient. Well, okay, uh, whatever that means, she was complex and said that during her stay at IU Health North facility, the nursing staff probably was intimidated by her critique of their care. So she asked too many questions. She asked too many and questions. Was a, and, and was but they little, knew she was a doctor. Yeah. But, but they, they, he said they probably got intimidated from by her and gave her ill care as a result of it. But that touches upon something that if you look up healthcare disparities that's often spoken on is how doctors don't trust the assessments of African-American patients, minority patients, particularly minority women. They never think they're in the same in the amount of pain that they're saying they're in. Why is that? What, what, have, you, have you heard about that experience and seen that experience? I have seen that um, experience. That's another bias, but that's an, that's an inherent stereotype that goes back well before slavery, even. When we first came to this country, as you recall, many of the initial first experiments, if you will, or uh, learning about how to do different procedures, especially in women, were done at the hands of, of physicians who were uh, learning new techniques in the in the gynecological world. Let's let's even talk about that. Um, and they were they were practicing those new techniques on slave women. They figured they didn't have pain because they didn't they weren't giving them uh, pain medications at that time. No anesthesia. And there was no anesthesia, you know, that so and, and whatever was being done at that time with alcohol or whatever, um, that wasn't done with them. The, the notion was that black people have a very high pain tolerance and they don't they don't feel pain like other people. They don't really have high pain. Right. Well, that's been carried on throughout time and people actually believe that. But what, what's so concerning for me is that this was a physician who was in a hospital and she was very familiar with this hospital. It wasn't like she was not familiar with the other providers, but she was very familiar with the hospital. They knew her, she knew them. So for that to have happened to her, for them to have thought that she didn't know what she was talking about, they weren't listening to her. They had no intentions, obviously, of listening to her. So there was something else going on there that is 
this day and time, I was when I saw it, I was like, t- my mouth fell open. I was like, my God, this this couldn't have happened to her. But I know it can happen very easily. People get shut down when you speak up too much, when you ask too many questions. They think you're, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I'm I'm the physician, and 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 maybe you need to be with someone else who, you know, who will let you. Whatever the case may be, folks are not listening. I've had the experience myself, so I know how folks don't listen. I just got out of the hospital myself, uh, two, two, three, almost three weeks now with COVID myself. I too was diagnosed. Three days I was at home trying to work on myself. And, you know, I have physicians in my family, so of course I was calling them. And when I realized that I could not get my temperature down and I was having all of the symptoms and I knew I was exposed to someone who was testing positive and had symptoms, I went straight to the hospital. But I didn't present like the usual other case that they might have seen. Right. I also have sarcoidosis. So I that's an autoimmune disease. Right. So I knew that that was going to be more of an issue for me and the COVID it was going to compete with my sarcoidosis. They weren't listening to me. And I kept telling them, they said, no, ma'am, you you know, you have a clear chest X-ray. Um, your your chest sounds are, sounds good. Your temperature is up. Yes, you do have a fever, but you know we'll give you some. We're going to keep you overnight, get your temperature down, and then we're going to probably send you home on some medication. And I was like, no, you're not listening to me. Right. I'm not leaving here until you give me what y'all gave the president, because I know what's <laughs> happening here. Um, and the next day they came in saying, no, we, we think you're going to let you go home. And I said, they said, you don't qualify for any of those therapies. And I'm like, no, I, I know what's happening to my body. I know when I'm short of breath, you know, I'm on oxygen. Of course I should be okay with my oxygen level. I got oxygen going in me, right. but you let me take this off and try to walk down the hall or get, or try to get to the bathroom. I'm going to give out a breath. I know what's happening to my body. And sure enough, they still didn't believe me. So I just got up and kept walking, kept walking, kept walking. And my saturation oxygen levels went down from 98 to 82. And they was like, oh, okay, now you qualify. So I qualified to get all, but I was not going to allow them to send me home. I kept saying, I might not make it home. I might not make it back if you send me home. Y'all need to treat me now. I'm not leaving until you give me treatment. And, and let you know, my doctors, please let my doctors, my oh, my um, internal medicine, my infectious disease and my pulmonary doctor who knows me, let my team take over and let them give me the care that I need. That story, personal story. And I'm glad to look at you. You're, you're doing well, obviously. You're you're on the rebound. So I'm back now, at uh, it. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break at this moment for our comments from our sponsors. The law firm of Hallitzer, Pettis & Schwamm is a proud sponsor of the Can We Talk 360 podcast. Our firm handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, catastrophic personal injury litigation, and workers' compensation matters. We pride ourselves in being advocates for justice on behalf of those who have been seriously injured. For decades, we've taken the lead in making your case our priority. It's who we are. It's who we'll always be. Hallitzer, Pettis, and Schwamm. Serious injuries, proven results. Jasmine, one of the issues that I wanted to talk about, and you've touched upon it, is so often people hear this discussion of healthcare disparity, and if it doesn't hit them in the pocketbook, it ain't my problem. That mm-hmm. that individual, that community's problem. One of the uh, areas, a study on healthcare disparities said healthcare disparities are costly. 
analysis estimates that disparities amount to approximately 93 billion in excess medical costs and 42 billion in lost productivity per year, as well as economic losses due to premature deaths. It went on to talk, you know, increasingly important to address healthcare disparities as populations become more diverse. And it talks about, we basically, we have to address these issues because by 50-50, you know, more than half of America is going to be black and brown. So we can't have that commu- those communities with these types of disparities. The tax on the system will be too great. Uh, and, and this report goes on. Uh, there is wide gaps in income across population. As of 2018, the richest 20% of households have an average of 200 income of $234,000 a year, nearly 17 times the average income of $14,000 a year for the bottom 20% of the household. Mm-hmm. So it is it, bringing in that economic uh, uh, piece to the equation that we touched upon in the first half. How do we get people to address? How did you succeed in getting them to see it's more efficient to address healthcare disparities on the front end, to make everybody in the community healthy so that you won't challenge the system in such a disparate way, such as we're doing now in the pandemic? Look at it like brick by brick. You build a community of wellness brick by brick. One of the things that came through when the Affordable Care Act first came through which was a phenomenal act that allowed for more people to become insured. And then once insured, they tend to not delay getting whatever access to care they need. You no longer had people um, deciding if they were going to go to the doctor or pay a light bill, buy their medication or do this. You know, if you if you had that health insurance in place, that was a pretty good coverage plan. You had adequate access. You just had to learn how to negotiate and use the plan that you had. So that was one way of helping to address was the Affordable Care Act. But then something else happened. Obama's out, Trump is in. And people are now deciding they want to change the policies on the Affordable Care Act and all the benefits that it did, get rid of it all together. That's a major piece of legislation that can be made better because it does what it needs to do in terms of getting access to care to people. You cannot stop getting access to care for people who have no means of getting or buying that insurance. You've got to provide for everyone. Another thing that was done during the time is increased monies that were put into community health centers. That has stopped during the Trump administration. So now that's got to come back into play because that allowed for access, good access and good care throughout communities, true community-based operations that were governed by the communities that they served and giving access to people. Hundreds of thousands of people get their care through community health centers. We have some of the best here in South Florida and in Broward County in particular, the best one in my mind is Broward Community and Family Health Center, which is a federally qualified health center run by a group of um, very, very competent individuals under the leadership and CEO of Rosalind Frazier. They have um, sites in Hollywood, Pompano, Lauder Hill Mall in Lauder Hill, um, as well as their um, Pompano office. They have a dental clinic in Pompano as well. So those are, and there are over 1,700 of these types of organizations across the country that have anywhere from four or five or more community health centers all around the areas that they serve. There's lots of them in Miami. I can go on and on about community health centers. 
But those are access points that will give people the access that they need. And those access points will be about giving them holistic, competent health care. And they don't have to worry about if they don't have the money to pay for that care, they're going to get the good care regardless. So that, that's one way. Another way is making sure that insurance companies have mandates that things have to be done when a person's care. For example, that you have to have your annual visit, that you are taught how to use your health care provider. Your annual visit will determine then the next steps and the next visits that your doctor and your care plan is going to uh, be based upon. And then teaching you how to actually use your plan for the benefits that you have to get your care to and, and your wellness increased. There are other and people have a, a play in that. Employers have a pay in that. You know how people give incentives right. so that um, you can stop smoking? Well, people can give incentives on the job that for, for for making sure that you get the health care that you need, that you get incentives for other things that may be important in your life, like extra vacation day that you can go with your family to some exercise something or a stress and relaxate de-stress and relaxation day. There's so many opportunities to get people engaged in what's going to be the best thing for their health, not only their physical health, but their mental health as well. You've got to put everything, I think, on the front end with prevention, making sure that people get the vaccines that they need. We're in a big crisis right now with COVID vaccine and the distribution. Right. And you all know what's happening there. We don't have a national plan for it. It's kind of like hit and miss and what have you. However, we've got to get the most impacted and the most who have been impacted thus far have been black and brown people who are dying at uh, exorbitant rates. Yeah, no, on that point, get- let me hold that point, Jasmine, because you, you, you touched when I want to give the stats to prove what you just said. According to the Brookings Institute, uh, that did an analysis, black people have died at 3.6 times the rate of white and Latinos are 2.5 times the rate of whites from COVID. Same disease killing significantly more people in the black and brown communities. And, 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 and why do you think that is? Because we have more of the underlying other conditions that this virus is going to take advantage of. And this is with this virus, it's about time. It's about who's the speediest and the smartest to get to the receptor cell, to get the job done, to attach and, and multiply and survive. And if you have a, another underlying condition, in my case, it was sarcoidosis. With other people, it's diabetes. Some people, it's heart disease. Other people, it's cancers. Whatever that may be, who has all of those disproportionately affected conditions of underlying diseases that who's going to be hardest hit? You remember you remember that when my dad used to always say, and I know you 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 remember this, when white people have a, a cold, we have pneumonia. It's the exact same thing. We have so many underlying conditions that this virus, the COVID virus has taken advantage of, and it has brought to light the deficiencies in our systems of care, how we deliver care, who we deliver care to, and how we educate people even on a strategy as to how to prevent getting exposed to this particular virus. I mean, think about it. How long did it take before we were actually trying to tell people of with one clear message about what to do to mitigate around this virus, which is a respiratory disease, right. a respiratory transmitted virus? How often, you, we knew we were gonna be summer coming into winter. When were we gonna teach people in your households how to actually organize your household especially if you have a multi-generational household to protect everybody in the household. When somebody has to go out to work, 
Somebody has to go get the groceries. The kids are not going to school, but the teenagers can't be going out doing what they want to do and bring them something back home. You know, we, we didn't teach folks that. We didn't even teach folks that we probably even have to wear the mask even in our own homes. Because we have folks who are going outside. We need to organize our household. Yeah, I mean, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. I was talking to someone at Mount Hermon uh, end of last year. They lost two uh, senior members uh, at Mount Hermon Baptist Church because they had their grandchildren staying with them who went out the home and brought the disease back in. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm, we're, I want to head uh, toward the end is too often, I believe, we look at our community the broader Broward community, the broader Florida, the broader United States community as individual communities that are disconnected from each other. And what COVID has shown is the interconnectedness, not just to our individual communities, but to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, something starts in China and boom, it's all over the world. And, and, and how we, even though you may have the social and economic means within your community, with your household, your children go to school, interact with people that may be less fortunate. We have to recognize the importance of why the entire community needs to be healthy. Because you go to Publix, you go to Winn-Dixie, you go to whatever grocery store, they don't split you up in social economic categories. Right. So if you, if you come from a community that's been exposed, you're now interacting with everybody. Yes. We have to look at this issue differently. And you have highlighted it perfectly for us. As this series unfolds, we're going to start talking about our social policy. You touched a little earlier, Jasmine, on the restaurants in our community. You know, you go over to the Northwest section 33311, you know, you got Kentucky Fried Chicken and Pie Pie's Chicken and every type of fried chicken you can have. You go to Los Olas, you don't see those things. Nope. Okay, I like a little fried chicken, but it's not the most healthy thing. And you look at the diet that people are consuming out of necessity. It's all I can afford. It's all that's here. And you wonder why they have this disease comorbidity. We, we're acting as if our social policies don't impact the health care of our community and the health care doesn't impact the whole of the community. Um, and, and we must become smarter. Jasmine, I'm going to end with this uh, question as a foundational principle of Can We Talk 360 is that for the hope for our collective future rests with all of society coming together as one humanity in the context of a more equitable social health system. What is the one bit of advice you would leave our listeners with that will help us achieve a more holistic and equitable healthcare system? The one thing I think I would leave is that, you know, we're all, especially, and this this pandemic has taught us that we are all, we should be all in this together because it's a respiratory condition and we all have to breathe the same air. So we all have to learn to live together as one for the best and to provide the best for all of us because we all deserve that. And it's our own behaviors that get us into trouble, whether it's our behaviors of isolating, politicizing, discounting, or downright discriminating. We all have to come together. That I'm trying to do my little heart. (laughs) If we we love us, then we will treat us as us, meaning us as a family as one. 
we've done that and we did not do that in AIDS. Look where we are there still 40 some odd years later, 40 plus, 45 years later. We can't afford that with something like COVID, which is respiratory. We found vaccines in less than a year, okay? It's 45 years for HIV. We didn't learn stuff from HIV that we cannot repeat with this COVID. So we're either gonna get it together well, we're going to die together. It's very, very poignant point. Uh, thank you, Jasmine, for your more than three decades of service to our community health in this community and in the broader community. Without question, you have kept up the Shirley legacy and contributions to distinguished healthcare services. I can't let you go without acknowledging Ms. Carmen Shirley, Dr. Carmen Shirley, your sister, who's a medical doctor. Uh, somebody mentioned her name the other day, and I said, I remember she used to have her little blue Catholic schoolgirl dress on playing in the road when yeah. I would come over to uh, uh, the Burroughs home or to your home, and she's done so well. So your parents are both proud of you, proud of Cedric, proud of Carmen, and in truth, I appreciate the Shirley contribution to the healthcare of our community. Thank you so much for participating in this conversation. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful series. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Can We Talk 360. I sincerely hope that you were inspired to seize this moment in time and take real action towards change. Remember, all change begins with a conversation. Be sure to tune in every month for more fascinating discussions and motivational food for the soul. Please share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Can We Talk 360 and visit us on the web at www.canwetalk360.com.